Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Life Lessons from Sports and Beyond. Simon here. Thank you for joining me once again. Today I have a fascinating guest. His name is Peter Hamlin. He's a world-renowned neurosurgeon and expert in sports injury. And the theme is not giving up. Peter saved the life of the boxer Michael Watson after a blood clot formed on his brain minutes after his infamous world title fight with Chris Eubank in 1991. It was Peter who operated on him, and even though his early prognosis was bleak, Michael's recovery has been nothing short of remarkable. And since that night, Peter and Michael have developed a close friendship. Peter has also suffered a tragedy of his own when his son Dominic died following a cardiac arrest from a previously unsuspected heart condition. Dominic was a rugby player, a rower, a cricketer, and the condition that took his life has many names, including sudden athlete death, because its victims are often extremely fit, just as Dominic was. At least 12 young people die of cardiac arrest each week. And that's something Peter's looking to address through his work with Podium Analytics, the NGO and charity committed to reducing the incidence and impact of injury in youth sport. And as Peter says, there's currently a chasm of ignorance in that area. For example, on average, there are over 2.7 million visits to A&E each year as a result of young people being injured during sport. Podium's founder is Ron Dennis CBE, the former boss of Formula One team McLaren, who oversaw 10 drivers' championships and seven constructors' titles and was, of course, instrumental in the early career of Lewis Hamilton. Podium are working alongside Oxford University and the work they're doing could have a profound impact on the health of the nation. It was a pleasure speaking to Peter Hamlin. He is full of wisdom and life lessons, and we discuss all sorts from how to create opportunities in life, what he's learned from Michael Watson's incredible recovery and outlook, the key ingredients for brain health, why there are no such things as superfoods, right through to why the Big Bang Theory on the origins of the universe is due for an upgrade at some point. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Peter. 
Peter Hamlin. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you? Oh, very well. Yeah, good. Thank you. Good. Now, I was very much looking forward to meeting you a few months ago at a function, and sadly, you weren't able to make it. You know, I was very much looking forward to picking your brains, no pun intended, but... It's when I pick your brains that it gets hazardous. <laughs> yes, indeed. And we'll come on to that. But the chance to chat to you now is a real honour and a privilege. So I do appreciate you coming on. And just to outline, you're a, a world famous neurosurgeon, specialist in sports and exercise medicine. There's obviously lots to talk about on that score, as it were. It's as well worth touching on your artistic and philosophical life too, because you've, amongst other things, collaborated on a fascinating album, which we will come back to later. But I want to start with you and medicine. And am I right in saying, you were drawn to medicine for the simple fact of you wanted to be called Dr. Hamlin. Um, I think that's true. The um, family I grew up in had no medical backgrounds at all. My mother was a musician, a music teacher. My father was an engineer, a gas engineer. And um, there was no tradition of it. So I was doing physics, chemistry and maths A-level. I also thought, well, you know, I really don't enjoy physics, chemistry or maths, so why would I apply for university? And it was my tutor, or I was doing my A-levels at the time, who said, you know, it would be a waste. You could do anything. And she ran through a list of things, including Dr. Hamlin. And I thought, Dr. Hamlin? Well, that doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> Got a ring to it, yeah. Got a ring. And, and madly, I just made an appointment with my GP. And, and when I got in the room, he said, so tell me what's wrong with you. And I said, well, nothing. It's just that I was thinking of applying to medical school. I don't suppose <laughs> you'd ever get to a GP with that um, complaint. But amazingly, he was a wonderful man called Dr. McKenzie, who, who said, um, well, I haven't got time to talk to you now, but come around to my house after work. And so I did. And um, the rest is history. I think that's a cracking lesson or life lesson to almost kick off with, that you sought out advice in that way, because it's something I talk about a lot at the moment is, to some degree, we're losing the art of face-to-face -face communication, even over-the-phone communication. It's all emails and text messages and the like these days. And I always say to people, particularly young people who get in touch with me asking for any career advice, get in front of people and you never know where it will lead. And you literally got in the front of your doctor and it's led you to the top of your profession. So that's a good starter for one, I would say. Uh, yeah, I think... Careers tend to be very prescriptive, and certainly medical careers now are very prescriptive. You know, you have to decide very early where you want to go, and I think that's such a shame. I think the way we've compartmentalised learning, um, so yeah. we have kids who leave school thinking they're bad at science or mm. bad at art, or yeah, uh, it it just can't be true, uh, and it's a fashion of the last two hundred years, really. Before that, you just had brilliant people and not so brilliant people, and but they were all polymaths. And uh, the fact that you can't meander as much in a career, uh, in a life, uh, and be successful, I think, is uh, a shame, perhaps. And our accepting that you can't have interest in more than one sphere is also a, a limitation I think one should try and shun. Yeah, absolutely. I actually recorded a really interesting podcast with David Epstein, who's a fascinating author, wrote the book Range, which is very much about the the meandering path to fulfilment, which resonated very much with me. And because I always chastise myself for not having a five year plan, but in hindsight, I'm I'm pleased. Now, um, 
you had various mentors along your way, obviously Sid Watkins, John Curry, Farry Afshar. Can you just pick out a few of the key lessons that they taught you about life, about work? or And one that I thought I'd throw you away first is Farry really extolled the virtues or taught you about working hard. And he said something like a day without neurosurgery is a day lost. Yeah. Uh, and he, he said it in all seriousness for him that was. And um, he's now uh, in his retirement an amazing photographer, but I, I don't think you can do any form of medicine, particularly one that demands of you uh, so much uh, as an neurosurgery career does it demands a lot of you and your family if you're not passionate about it if you don't get enjoyment out of it the thing that has always excited me about going to work has been the patients and uh, I think I would have been as happy as a GP as I was a neurosurgeon I was fascinated by the brain so from an early time in my academic career so it, it was the natural thing for me to militate to but the fundamental thrill of being a clinician is the fact that several times a day you say to somebody, tell me about your problems and you see if you can fix them. And there's nothing much more rewarding than that. And I think Farry's quote in that really was that he was passionate about the particular sort of medicine he did. And mm. indeed, he did it seven days a week. Wow. Um, and uh, so did all of those Great neurosurgeons, John Curry, Tom King, Sid Watkins, remarkable people who worked all day and often all night. Unbelievable. So obviously you talk about needing that that love for what you do. And you mentioned that the people side of it is something that you resonate hugely with and you would have enjoyed being a GP. But in terms of neurosurgery itself, when you are involved in that activity, as it were, is there an element of flow in that? Do you lose yourself in it akin to a sportsman losing himself or herself in the activity of playing their sport? Um, Sid used to describe the operating theatre as a cathedral. Uh, for me, it's more like a chapel, but it, it is the days when I operate are the most peaceful. You usually work on your own in terms of being a surgeon, it's not a team of surgeons, but there is a huge team around you. They're all focused on the patient. You spend the whole day often in complete silence. If you're working with a theatre assistant you're familiar with, and, and I had some brilliant assistants, you would just put out your hand and the instrument you were after would appear. And you'd realise sort of two hours into an operation that you hadn't actually said anything. You'd just been looking down the microscope. But every time your hand went out, the thing you needed arrived in your hand. And you have the calm of complete focus on what you're doing. As long as you know what you're doing, it's a very relaxing and rewarding time. Some would, great days. Would time get bent out of shape, as it were? You know, that whole thing of an hour going by in five minutes. Would that be an experience that you had? Uh, yes. The... Longest operation I did was 26 hours which wow. I, in one go, which I did with um, Sid. Uh, we were removing a benign tumour from the base of a young woman's brain, uh, who I think is still alive to this day. Uh, that was a couple of decades ago. And it didn't seem like that at all. You appeared shortly after you went into theatre the following day. 
and uh, it just felt like you'd been there for your usual few hours. Yeah, so it, it is a period of great focus. I love the picture you paint of the telepathic communication between the team. That's lovely as well. Now, before we get into some of your experiences, your story, your life lessons, I just had a couple of uh, questions about the brain because obviously it's a fascinating topic that everyone's interested in. and I don't think there's many more qualified to discuss it than you. So, for example, one thing that has been a very, certainly, let's say, around London 2012 and in the years shortly after, that was a very prominent topic of conversation was the so-called chimp model from Steve Peters. You know, the, the splitting it into three, the human, the computer, the, the chimp based around the amygdala. A lot of people since then have actually taken umbrage with that model. Do you have any thoughts on it? You know, the brain is a phenomenally complex thing, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Depending upon your belief system, it's either what you are or where you live. If you think it's where you live, then you've got the problem of, well, who are you? What is it that's living in these brains? And if you think it's what you are, then uh, you're left with the problem of, in what way do you think you're different from a leech or a snail? All of whom have uh, brains or neurons of one sort or another. The chimp model, that simple bit, you've got a sort of animal, emotional bit and then this computer side of you, the rational thinking bit, divides something which I think can't be divided that simply. It's a useful tool to allow some individuals to negotiate the problems they're having in life. It's a useful way of thinking about it. Ditto ids and egos. But it's a vast oversimplification of um, this majestic organ. Indeed. So a metaphor for thinking, essentially. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of brain health, which is obviously hugely important, if someone was to ask you, Peter, how can I keep my brain in the best possible shape, whether through nutrition or exercise or what, what would be your the first couple of answers that sprung to mind? Uh, I suppose start young. Your brain develops in response to its environment. Again, we can talk about that in more detail, but that is such a profound thing. Uh, we're born with a brain that is woefully underdeveloped, hence our childhood is so long compared to other animals. I'm looking after a baby lamb at the moment. It could walk uh, <laughs> after about an hour, and it follows you around, calls when it's lost, is starting to learn how to eat, and interacts with the dog in a remarkable way. It's born with a brain that's almost fully-fledged, Uh, as a sheep's brain. We're born with this thing that is incredibly primitive. We can't control most of our bodily functions, can't feed ourselves, can't speak. And if you look just at one particular bit of our brain function, say vision, if you're born with cataracts, and uh, in some societies that still happens today, that, that you develop cataracts in the womb and you come out and you never see. And then later on, you remove those cataracts, as saying as an adult, uh, those people actually can't see. They can't under. They have vision insofar as they detect light, but they can't understand any of what it is they see. It's like an untuned radio. It's a noise, uh, often annoying for them. But if they had a few weeks, few months of vision when they were young, and they then go blind, and then some years later you remove those cataracts, uh, they see perfectly well. So it's the visual stimulation 
that drives the development of your brain, even in very basic functions of how you see. Mm. So if you then take that notion into how do I look after my brain? Well, uh, your brain's a done deal by the time you've asked that picture. So you want to ask yourself, how do I look after my kid's brain? And that is by stimulating them, educating them, exposing them, having them interact. And then ask the question the other way. What happens to my kid's brain if I sit him in front of a computer all day long and never talk to him? Or don't show him this or don't show him that? Your ability to learn, uh, your brain's ability, once it's become matured and hardwired, is determined to a very large degree by how we nurture it in those young days. It's a very important part of your brain's development. After that, it's just eat a reasonable diet and um, don't do stuff that rots your brain, like over-drinking, smoking. Uh, that's about it. Fantastic. That was brilliant advice. So listen, I've got a lot of listeners who are teachers, parents, um, coaches. That was uh, really fascinating. Right, Peter, let's dive into a timeline starting in September 1991 when what's turned out to be a unforgettable night in boxing history uh, that's completely transformed the sport in many ways. Chris Eubank and Michael Watson were fighting for a world title and you were at a family dinner party, weren't you? Unaware that they were indeed fighting. Um so Michael was the third boxer I'd treated um, as an emergency to remove a blood clot from the brain. And by this time in my career, I'd just been appointed as a consultant at Bart's Hospital. And so I'd reached the luxurious stage in my life at 31 where I could actually be at home when I was on call. And I'd actually got my parents down and was giving them dinner <laughs> in my house a mile or so from the hospital uh, when I got a phone call. And my junior on the phone said, um, we have this man with an acute subdural hematoma. He's been involved in a fight and um, he needs a craniotomy. And I said, well, you know what to do, get going and I'll be in. He didn't say what kind of fight it was. It was, you know, uh, the weekend. The usual thing you were dealing with was a uh, pub brawl and uh, turned out to be Michael. And it became apparent, did it not, who it was and that it was uh, more than just a town scrap when you saw the media scrum at the hospital entrance. So what's going through your mind at that point? Uh, how do I get in? <laughs> and, uh, there was a back door to Bart's hospital and um, we had a bag lady who the staff used to allow to sleep in the foyer. And um, I thought, well, if I try and go through the front door, that's going to be trouble so I just went around the back and tapped on the window and the bag lady let me in uh, so I whizzed up the stairs into theatre. So just to for anyone who doesn't necessarily know so Chris and Michael fought in September 1991 at White Hart Lane it's the second of their fights brutal and the 11th round in particular and Michael actually knocked Chris over knocked him down I think for the first time in Chris's career and Chris sort of sprang to his feet and delivered this uppercut that knocked Michael off his feet and he fell back into the ropes and from that point on was sort of staggering around, actually came out for the 12th and then the fight was ended 
And shortly afterwards, he collapsed. And there's a lot of criticism of the fact that there was a lack of doctor and ambulance and all those things that could have made a real difference to his life. And by the time he got to you, another quote I've read of yours was, he was more seriously ill than any patient I have encountered or you have encountered. Yeah, you know, he um, was, uh, meet the dog, by the way. Yeah, hello, Um, dog. (laughs) (laughs) He was an incredibly fit man. You know, I've seen and worked with elite sports men and women, but he stands out as the fittest person I've ever seen. Seeing him on a ventilator, he looked like some Greek statue, extraordinarily fit man. And he hovered on the doors of death for weeks. And to be blunt, most people either get better or die in a matter of hours or days. And he hovered there for longer than I've ever known anyone by an order of magnitude. And at that time, I he had a, he had a wonderful, wonderful mother who sadly recently died, but she was extraordinarily supportive of me and the team. But she lived that agony for a month on a knife edge. And eventually he turned that corner and we started to feel more secure about him. But that was an extraordinarily long road that I had not seen others survive. And the damage was made that much worse by the delay, was it not, in terms of you know getting the right equipment to him, getting him out of the ring, getting him to you, because there's what, the the golden hour as it's known. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Uh, Yeah. So your brain has a ferocious metabolism. It's about the size of a cauliflower and it's about as tough as a rather overboiled cauliflower. And it has a blood supply of a litre of blood a minute goes through it, every minute of every day. And if you cut off that blood supply for four minutes, it's more or less dead. And the injury that Michael had suffered in the ring was actually trivial. At the point you see the referee standing uh, with his arm across Michael saying, this fight's over, you're not defending yourself. Michael is protesting that he wants to carry on. He's looking to the corner. So whatever you know, and I had a a very uh, heart-rending conversation in the days that followed with, with Chris, um, that whatever we know is that at the point that fight stopped, he hadn't got a material brain injury. He was dopey. He couldn't defend himself, uh, but he was awake enough to know uh, that he wanted to carry on and was protesting and was standing up. What you ended up with after a month of intensive care and a series of operations was a guy who was just about stable enough to be on an ordinary hospital ward, not stable enough to go to rehabilitation. Um, He couldn't feed, couldn't control himself, couldn't speak. He was breathing on his own, but that was about it. And the difference between a walking, talking, sentient man and that uh, was the consequence of the pattern of care. That was the overwhelming thing for me. And I had insight into that immediately because I'd taken out exactly the same blood clots from two previous boxers. One of them was very lightly disabled, a chap called Robert Darko, mm. lovely guy. The other one was Rod Douglas. He was boxing for a title weight fight with 
Harold Graham at Wembley. He was brought to the hospital actually by his wife really fast. And uh, he left ITU 24 hours later and left hospital about a week later. And he appeared on telly about four weeks later saying he wanted to box again, complaining that his license had been taken away from him. He subsequently saw the light and decided to give it up. But um, So it was immediately apparent to me that the pattern of care was the problem. And when you looked into the pattern of care, there was no resuscitation ringside. If he'd been an injured Formula One driver, there would have been. There was no plan as to where to take him. So he goes to the nearest hospital. Not a bad idea uh, because he needed to be put on a ventilator because he wasn't breathing. But that hospital didn't have neurosurgeons. Uh, The tragedy of British neurological care is that only 20-odd of our hospitals, um, 700-odd hospitals, have neurosurgeons in them. So the likelihood of him finding going to a hospital that would have one was low. Uh, So after being put on a ventilator, he gets put back in the ambulance and they start ringing around trying to find someone who has a neurosurgical bed. So his golden hour was spent finding a ventilator and driving around trying to find a neurosurgeon in fact it was his golden two and a half hours um, by the time we actually got going and the consequence of that is the life michael leaves which he has a remarkable view of it Uh, Mm. but for you and me it would be an absolutely crushing burden yes it wasn't a good prognosis i know you said he, he wouldn't run he wouldn't move to his left side walk or speak smoothly and his survival really was regarded as a miracle. I mean, it took a long time, but and there were minor improvements, but he did recover increasingly up to the point where you ran the marathon together, which was in 2003, over six days. We'll, we'll come to that. But just at which point along the way did you two develop a friendship? I suppose in the years that followed, uh, it was over a year before you could have anything other than a one word conversation with him. I had come to have a, a very warm relationship with his mum. It was always a great time when uh, she came with Michael. He had, from an early stage, an amazing carer called Lenny. He now has an equally amazing carer called Haroon. It was in those early years that we started to get to know each other. But the longer things have gone on and, you know, I face my own troubles, um, mm. the closer you become uh, with people and uh, certainly with Michael. He's been... Um, yeah, great help. Uh, I think he's done as much for me in terms of my well-being, philosophy on life, um, as ever I've done for him physically. Could you share a little bit then of of what you have learned and taken from Michael in terms of your philosophy, your outlook, etc.? Well, before I met Michael, our family motto was never give up. And um, I have never seen a guy never give up as much as him. Utterly remarkable. Um, so that sort of uh, uh, set a bar, really, for what <laughs> never give up means. And his commitment to helping others. You know, he views his injury as a blessing. He thinks it saved him from a life that would have been far less rewarding than the one he leads. And it's allowed him, as he says, to help others less fortunate than himself. As I say, most of it would be crushed by the burden he has. But if you see him interviewed if you know occasionally we do things together trying to fundraise for various causes uh, he's a real entertainer such a cheerful guy yeah absolutely 
I've read a quote of his which read, I would have had riches if I'd won that fight against Eubank, but my soul would have been lost. And clearly, uh, despite the injustice, even the lack of compensation that he had, there's, there's no rancor. A lovely quote of his that really stuck with me and that I also know really stuck with your son, Dominic, is it makes me feel alive to help others. And so I know your son, Dominic, raised money for the Brain and Spine Foundation with him. And he wanted to run the marathon for others less fortunate than me. So he was very much inspired by Michael. Um, Yeah. So uh, I have a picture somewhere of Dominic as a very little boy on that marathon uh, with Michael, somewhere near Tower Bridge with a bucket collecting money from the uh, from the public. And um, it was a, a day that uh, Dominic remembers uh, from his uh, remembered from his early childhood uh, all the way through. And um, yeah, I think it did inspire him to want to help others. And he did some extraordinary things for that and other charitable causes, uh, including the amazing um, Goodwood to Mongol rallies where you drive uh, an old banger all the way from Goodwood uh, to outer Mongolia. Um, and uh, in his instance, he decided to drive it back again. They, they rather liked the car. He did that with his brother, Gabriel. So Dominic was the eldest of three, the blondies, as you call them. And <laughs> he was an athlete, an academic. He was altruistic. He was kind. But he also had an unsuspected heart condition. So could you just share with us the the events of of the night on which he died and it was also your other son's 21st birthday party. Yeah. Uh, it was a joyous family occasion. He was as fit as a flea. Uh, he'd just competed and won for his um, college, Downing, uh, Cambridge, the uh, rugby. And he madly, as always, decided that it would be a good idea if the rugby team also <coughs> entered the rowing competition called the Bumps. And if you think about it, what you need physiologically to be a rugby player is short, sharp, grunt. And what you need to be a rower is endurance. So these are two totally separate sports. And he'd managed to get his rugby team a long way through the rowing competition, having won the rugby, which was a remarkable thing. He'd just finished his master's and done really well at that and was um, about to head off into a career in something that would take him somewhere. Um. And uh, he was always Mr. Helper. He was the sort of, you know, my right-hand man. So uh, that night, Benedict, our youngest, was having his 21st birthday and um, Dominic uh, was being a very sensible elder brother, gave a lovely speech, was wandering around making sure everybody was in good form. And... um, uh, I get called uh, saying, come quickly, Dominic's collapsed. Um, I literally run around the corner. We were outside. It was a summer's day or a summer's evening. And uh, thinking, oh, that'd be silly. You know, uh, this would be the usual children's hysteria, though they did seem very certain I needed to come. And um, he was totally unconscious, not breathing. And uh, we resuscitated him. 
uh, in as ideal a circumstance as you could wish for, um, the ambulance came uh, and 15 hours later, after the most extraordinary efforts uh, at the hospital, um, three intensivists, teams coming down from London, everything that you could hope to be done for him was done and he died. And it transpired that he had um, an unsuspected uh, heart condition, um, which has got various names, um, sudden arrhythmic uh, death or sad, uh, sudden athlete death, sad, uh, cry, cardiac risk in the young. Um, But essentially, uh, these kids and young adults have uh, an arrhythmia. Their heart doesn't just suddenly stops beating properly. Uh, and they arrest, and we've seen that in famous footballers. Mm. And what I, you know, so I knew about this sudden athlete death, and um, I knew as I was doing my mouth to mouth that that's what I was dealing with. Um, but what I didn't know about that condition uh, was that it claims twelve young people a week uh, in the UK. Uh, what I didn't know was that there is uh, a screening. Uh, regime you could institute which would save about 10 of them and what I didn't know about Dominic was actually what an amazing uh, and kind guy he was Um, we have boxes of letters many from people I didn't know who wrote about him of things he'd done in his life uh, to help others that uh, I'd never heard about talking to young kids who are having trouble with their sport, encouraging teams, helping people at parties who were in trouble, all sorts of things that I I didn't know he he did in his life. Um, So um, heartbreaking uh, beyond belief. Mm. Um, And it left one uh, shattered, stunned, uh, a whole family um, broken by by that event, and uh, you start to piece that uh, back together um, uh, with those you love around you. So, as you say, you know, profound and heartbreaking, and I've heard you as well saying, you know, no words can describe the scope and scale. How have you, as a family? been able to deal with the grief of something so tragic and also how have you honored his memory if you like um i I don't know how how we've managed uh we've done it together it's all i can say um i'm sure we could have done it better um it's not a process that ever ends um you get by because you know, you have to support those around you who are also in trouble. And uh, it's extraordinary the love that's out there and how people come and help. And uh, they do come and help in amazing ways. And, um, you know, it, you're not really talking here about recovery. You don't get over it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it it's, it's reaching a new norm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how yeah. how do things like the letters that you received or the people offering to help 
those gestures from people outside how important are they because i think often people can think i don't know that it may not contribute much when you just send a letter or get in touch but actually how impactful can things like that be in your experience that's it's amazing um extraordinary people brought food to the house and i just thought how odd but how fantastic that they did um uh nobody wants to eat nobody wants to let's still cook but actually that business of sitting down at the table around some food creates a handrail uh, that you can hang on to in this uh, in this blizzard and the letters that would come day after day after day um, I had some well they're extraordinary uh, and I will uh, <clears throat> when I'm feeling up to it reread them all um, but if you're seeing someone in that kind of trouble then um, yeah write your letter if you're thinking whether you should or you shouldn't you should. And in terms of SAD, the condition itself, uh, I saw you wrote a very moving article looking to raise awareness of this. So if you had to, if you like, summarise sort of the key message you were trying to get across and would like to get across, what would it be? I, th- I suppose the statistics uh, that, that I've talked about, this isn't rare. What happened to us is not rare. It, it's 12 young people in the UK every week uh, die of that condition. Uh, many of them have had warning symptoms that they don't recognise and that medics don't recognise. There are things we can do to screen. And you ask me how we have honoured Dominic's memory. Um, I, I don't think we've even begun uh, to think about that. But um, my work with Podium, which aims at... Uh, developing what we've developed for elite athletes in terms of sports medicine, rolling that out to adolescents, will very much involve a a screening programme that some interesting Italian research has shown is effective. Uh, It's just we haven't got a structure for getting to these kids. And uh, Podium will create that structure in our national schools. And there are a host of other things I hope it will achieve, but one of them uh, is to stop families suffering what we suffered and um, kids being robbed in the way uh, Dominic was. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And Podium Analytics is a fascinating organization, fascinating proposition, broad in scope. And, and actually, when I heard about it, it did prompt that question or rather prompt the thought, why is there this, as you call it, this chasm of ignorance about injury and in sport for young people, which includes something, things like SAD, but through to just the level of injuries, the, the number of people in A&E from schools, et cetera. Yeah, well, look, I was chairing a, a conference for the FA and RFU and, and ECB, uh, a session at the conference recently, and um, it was all about concussion. And uh, a lady in the audience told a harrowing story of her father who had, they suspected, uh, had suffered the consequences of a long career in collision sport. Uh, and was suffering from uh, dementia. And the question was posed, surely this is unacceptable. Uh, And uh, it is unacceptable. But 30 years ago, it was worse. So when I started in sports medicine, you know, when Michael suffered his injury in 1991, um, it was a whole pile worse. And after a career, we've made it a whole pile better. Boxers, attribute their lives to the changes that Michael's campaign brought in. The creation of sports medicine as a specialty didn't actually happen until we won the Olympic bid, because people like me had pointed out that if we win this bid and the medicine is to be provided by the health service, the health service has no sports doctors. Um, There is no training program for sports doctors. We don't recognize sports medicine as a specialty. The fact we won those games meant that uh, we then had to train some sports doctors because we said we'd have them if we won the games and uh, between 2005 when we won the bid and the games in 2012 we trained uh, a current batch of sport and exercise medicine physicians and they are now available in all of the leading sports organizations the governing bodies and in most of the elite uh, professional clubs so that's a sea change that's a, a massive change the levels of sports medicine that were in Formula One developed by Sid Watkins back in through the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 90s are now available to all sportsmen and women at the professional level. What's missing, what's still to be done, is to take that down into the community level. And if you look at the community level, the place where these injuries are happening, the t- place where you can change behaviours so that sport becomes safer is in adolescence. And it's really important. Uh, if you look at the industry, if you like, of hip replacements and knee replacements, a lot, a lot, a lot of those uh, being done in the 50s and 60s are a consequence of injuries sustained in youth. And if you had trained better, trained differently, played differently, uh, many of those injuries could be avoided. So. We know also that exercise is fantastically important for your overall health. It's the most powerful health tool there is, and yet we're doing less and less of it. Mm. So 
promoting exercise, which is very good for you, and reducing the injuries associated with the sports you undertake to take that exercise it is about the most effective piece of public health you could ever think of. Uh, it's the audaciousness of, of Podium's mission to get into every school to translate or to deliver this health tool to kids that really inspired me to get involved with it yeah. before Dominic had his tragedy. And uh, since his tragedy, it's been um, a, a greater commitment. Yes, I spoke to Constantine, who's part of the team at Oxford who are working with Podium. And what you said about the public health proposition, you know, the possible prospective impact that this could have. And he realized the the potential scale of impact this could have. He he said um, it was as big and profound as anything that Oxford had or, or was doing, which I think says it all. But you mentioned the podium mission, if you like, or the statement of intent. If you had to summarise it, what would it be? It's to deliver to teenagers and young adults the safety and medicine that we have now delivered to the elite level and to prevent injuries occurring, to make kids more intelligent about the way they do their sport, uh, how you tackle safely, um, how you handle injuries uh, in order to minimise the impact and legacy of that sport. We're an organisation that wants to encourage people to do sport uh, because we know that makes them healthy, both physically and mentally. It has huge things that it can give to people. We don't want to make sport a less testing environment than it is. Uh, So we're not into neutering sports. What we're into doing is uh, reducing the injuries so that you can have something that is exciting, more exciting, uh, with more participants, but with fewer injuries and, and much less adverse legacy. Now, you might think that's impossible. How can you have kids play a lot of rugby, for example, and not have more injuries? Well, that was where Sid Watkins, in his 25 years working in Formula One, showed us the way forward. Um, You had then a sport that was killing people, often more than one person, uh, every weekend, every race. Somebody died uh, in the practice days. Often people died. Uh, And you now have a sport that is faster, uh, has way more accidents happening at higher speeds than has ever happened before. And yet the numbers, it still claims the odd life, but the numbers who are seriously injured or die doing that sport are tiny compared to where they were. So it's faster. There are more accidents, but less injuries. Uh, How do you do that magic? Well, it's about collecting data where people get injured, when they get injured, how they get injured, what's the mechanism of the injury, changing uh, what you can change. And they change everything from track design to car design uh, to suit design, helmet design, head uh, retaining gear. And they did that step by step by step by step. It's about not accepting normal. And I think that's another good way of approaching most of life. Don't accept normal. Uh, You want to shift normal to being so that normal's better than it currently is. And then when you've shifted it to this new normal, you do it again. So you're never satisfied. There's always somewhere to get 
we've gone a long way in my career. What I hope we will set up to happen in this next uh, set of careers that are going to follow in uh, the Podium Initiative uh, is a process that will deliver those improvements with the same methodology. You collect data, which kids are being injured, where, at what time, in what position, and then you look to mitigate those precise risks so that you dissect out the bad bits whilst leaving all the good bits. It's a bit like a smart operation. You mentioned don't accept normal, which brings me on to Ron Dennis. He came up with a a very interesting line or a nice line, which was that don't expect results quickly, but expect results. What's it like working with Ron? Uh, Well, Ron uh, has been uh, a friend for a a long time. The thing about Ron is he does success. So he ran the most successful Formula One team in history. And nobody's yet managed to take that away from him. And that is what everybody knows him for. But he has done a host of other things. Just one other audacious thing he did when Corona first started, he decided he'd deliver hospital meals, uh, meals to hospital staff. And he delivered millions of meals, but they weren't just any meal. These were healthy, well-balanced diets. He wasn't sending pizzas to hospital. He was selling a full-blown nutritional meal with all of the appropriate liquids and fluids and products that that involved. And he sets a bar ridiculously high and then confidently arranges for everybody to jump over it. So two things really that attracted me to Podium and that whole project. One was the, the seriousness of the approach. You have to change orders of magnitude of resource if you want to make a change in medicine. So you can't spend a few thousand. You've got to spend many tens of millions over a long number of years. And it was that seriousness and the drive for quality. It was very clear what we need to do. And uh, it it actually hatched out of uh, an experience he had as a school governor. He he came to me and said, look, my, my school can't field a rugby team because they're all injured. And uh, is that normal? And I said, well, that's a bit extreme. But um, uh, the fact that a lot of people are getting injured, uh, I said, I suspect a lot of those injuries are happening in training and that um, uh, they're perhaps overtraining. And sure enough, that seemed to be uh, the issue. And it's to deliver the insights and the expertise to this vitally important group that we're setting out to do. And I, I think it will. An interesting thing about Podium as well, it's not just the physical. There's a a real emphasis on mental health awareness. What's your take on this and what's your view on this in terms of the relationship between mental health and physical injury, for example? It's a very tight and two-way relationship. So uh, you get a physical injury and your mental health falls apart because the thing you passionately wanted to do uh, has just come asunder. I remember looking at a scan of a real medal hopeful for the 2012 games in the women's high jump. And uh, this athlete had a very nasty looking disc prolapse. And having trained and trained and trained to get there, literally her competition before the games, just a thing to finally tune her, her performance Um, she injured her neck in a way that meant she just couldn't compete at the games. Now, what that does to you psychologically, you you can't begin to believe. But these are professional athletes who've learnt to live with and overcome injury. Not being able to play in the 
school's first 11 at football at the final match is every bit as disappointing for that kid as it was for that girl in the Olympic Games. It, it's their world. And so it drives uh, a lot of deterioration in your mental well-being. Likewise, we know that if you are in trouble with your mental well-being, you are more likely to get injured and the consequences of those injuries are worse. Also, we know that um, if you're engaged in team sport and you get involved in team sport at whatever level, uh, it does an amazing amount for your uh, mental well-being. Mm. So exercise and organized sport is not just good for your physical health, though it is, as I say, the most powerful health tool we have. Taking exercise is the most important thing you can do. Forget superfoods. Um, I could talk to you about that, perhaps. <laughs> Forget superfoods. Exercise. The message is exercise. Uh, forget fat, just exercise. And that will help you mentally and physically. And um, if you're in trouble physically or mentally, exercise. It's a very simple message. There are lots of exceptions, but fundamentally, that's the answer. It's a simple message, but it's a profound and important one. And I'm grateful to you for uh, emphasizing it. I love the idea about superfoods. Can I, can, can go, I on, go on, Have it, go on, go for it. Um, the idea that there is such a thing as a superfood is actually bonkers. I eat this food and I'll be better. And the reason it's bonkers is, uh, I'll give you two bits of evidence. The first is evolution. In order to maintain this incredibly expensive, in terms of its energy requirements, brain, it takes a fifth of everything we eat. Um, we had to become the ultimate omnivore. We had to eat everything. So we had to know not just... Uh, what an elephant knows about where the grass and water is, we had to know every single berry, bug, plant, animal that you could possibly eat. And those that you can't eat raw, what you have to do to it in order to eat it safely, which you can eat the leaves of, but not the nuts, which you can eat the nuts of, but not the leaves. We had to become the absolute ultimate <coughs> omnivore in order to survive. So that you have a, <coughs> a combustion engine, a digestive system, a body that will live off anything. That's how we evolved. That's how we survived. Uh, the reason we have got a big brain is because we can eat anything. And um, if you look at beasties with smaller brains, they all have much more limited diets than we do. The other reason it's very obvious that there isn't a superfood is um, a wonderful uh, cartoon I saw of Winnie the Pooh, where he's lifted up his shirt and he's looking at his big fat tummy in the mirror. And uh, the caption reads, I'm just wondering when the salad's going to kick in. <laughs> and weight fitness is all about the amount you eat and the amount you exercise. And if you want to pick one of those, uh, eat what you like, but make sure you're exercising. I'll probably get struck off for that. But there, you go. <laughs> there we go. Peter, yeah. I, I just want to go off on a, on a slight tangent now, if I may, because you were involved in an album for Future Utopia in which you were uh, answered 12 questions and you sent me these 12 questions and I found them fascinating. And unfortunately we don't have time to go through all 12 because it would be uh, that that's a podcast in itself and a long one, but there were a few things that sprung out at me that I, I wanted to ask you about. There's a bit of philosophy in here and, and more besides. So first thing that, that leapt out at me, Peter, was you talked about the big bang theory and how it's going to end up 
looking in all likelihood very different in future. Our understanding of the so-called Big Bang will evolve. And I can't remember who it was, but I, it was a scientist and philosopher who, who said something like, it's a useful a useful fiction, I think is how he described it. Because obviously it's one of those things that everyone's like, okay, the Big Bang happened and this is, you know, everyone's got a very rudimentary understanding of it. But what's your take on that particular thing? Well, just that really, uh, you know, ever since man has evolved into societies, we've had creation theories. Where have we come from? What's it for? And everything from animism through to the great faiths, we've always been trying to explain what we see, make sense of it. And science has come along and said, we're different. We scientists are different. We have these unbreakable rules. You think, well, okay, what does that actually mean? Well, what that means is if the facts don't, new facts don't fit the rules, we change the rule. The Big Bang Theory is as good an explanation using logic as is evolution of how we've got to where we are. But if you think 2,000 years on from the creation theory and you add another 2,000 years on to where we are, in 4,000, I bet you people like you and me will look at the Big Bang Theory and say, 2,000 years ago, they believed in a Big Bang. I love that. I love that. And uh, and I I wrote a little play in in one of those things about the skeptic interviewing the the scientist. And, uh, you know, it, it... it begins at the beginning. In the beginning, there was nothing, nothing at all. Well, yeah. that sounds just like the Bible. Well, that's your scientist. And then yeah. he says, and then there was a big bang. Well, actually, no, there wasn't a big bang. Uh, in order to have a bang, uh, you have to have matter. And you've just said, uh, because you have to have an atmosphere in order for there to be a sound wave. And you've just said there was nothing at all. So if it was um, big, it certainly wasn't a bang. So it might be a big something. happening. <laughs> and it just goes on through that whole, yeah. whole thing. So I think it'll just look very different. So I think as an explanation, it's rather better than most of the others, but it is a creation story. And the key word being story. Yes. And and, uh, we will change it as we go on. I'm going to pose something to you slightly provocative, but a couple of things you've said. So, for example, you said if the facts change, the rules change. And in your 12 questions, there was, I can't remember which number it was, but how we find truth. And you, you spoke about the Buddha who established why everyone suffers and it's down to craving. Desire leads to suffering, but also a resistance to reality creates suffering. But there was another thing that he pointed out, which was this idea of no self, no problem. Now, you actually said right earlier in our conversation, you said, you know, your brain is either where you live or what you are. I'm just going to suggest, what if that paradigm is wrong? Because... From what you've said, I'm surmising that you're a materialist, a a physicalist, i.e. consciousness is an emergent property. But what do you make of the hard problem of consciousness as outlined by David Chalmers? Uh, You know, I I would not classify myself as a materialist. And I uh, see the limits of science everywhere around me. You know, I think it's a very nice notion that we are a pile of neurons uh, communicating by synapses, that we are uh, a neuronal network, an incredibly, incredibly complex neuronal network, but that's all. And that's, you know, a theory. But if that's a theory, let's take the simplest nervous system. There's a group of 
a beasties called nematodes. There's about 24,000 of them. Um, and uh, some of the simplest one of those will have four neurons, two sensory, uh, one motor, and a, a thing that drives its mouth. That's four neurons and a mouth. Is that conscious? It can go from A to B. It goes from A to B to get the stuff it wants. But does it want it? Or is, uh, does it have any free will at all? Or is it simply a, a pile of reactions? Now, if you don't imbue that with consciousness uh, and you say that somehow, mysteriously, if you just put enough of these neurons together, you get consciousness. Yeah. But unfortunately, we can't find it. We, we've looked in the brain quite in some detail, but we can't quite find it. We can't pull it out and say, here it is. It's rather tricky. You know, where does consciousness appear from? Is it just a manifestation of complexity? I think if I'm classified as anything, it's an uncertaintist. Um, I have been fascinated by the brain all my life. Uh, It's what I spent my time doing at university. I very nearly became a neuroscientist. Instead, I became a brain mechanic. But that question of, is it what we are or where we live? Well, I've got nowhere with that in my 40 years of, of study. Uh, I read a book when I was at uni, uh, written by a chap called J.C. Eccles and Karl Popper. One was a, a world-famous neuroscientist, Karl Popper, of course, a, a world-famous science philosopher, uh, developed falsification theory. And, and they wrote a book called um, The Brain in Itself. The first two sections of the book were pretty great. One was all about neuroscience. The other was all about philosophy. And then the two of them got together to write the third section, which was trying to blend Uh, this uh, difference between the mind and the brain. And it's uh, about the most disappointing book I ever read, actually, in that there's just a pile of euphemisms for we don't know. You know, it's a a puzzle. Are you familiar with with idealism, i.e. the idea or the philosophy that, that consciousness itself is primary and everything's appearing in it? Is that something you're familiar with? And is that something that's ever pricked your interest? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, a linguistic answer to the the problem. It's a bit like infinity. It's a, it's a great word. It doesn't actually have a precise meaning. And, you know, that's an interesting philosophy. I, I like the more intelligence or understanding. You know, maybe that's the primary phenomena when you look at it across the universe. There's a thing called the second law of thermodynamics, which is one of... Uh, yeah scientific laws. Uh, yeah. Everything turns to maximum entropy or chaos. And there are forces against chaos here on Earth. And the primary force uh, is DNA. And it's interesting to think of what other anti-chaos molecules there are in the universe and what they've created. Have they created life or something different? Is there something out there that's created intelligence but it's not alive intelligence. And, you know, we think in very confined linguistic terms and we see a very filtered version or experience a very filtered version of the universe through our nervous system yeah, um, and then through our language and then all of the things that uh, the social constructs we make to interpret meaning. Peter, and Peter can I just hop in very quickly? Because what, something you just said remind, uh, I, that I read uh, in your 12 questions. So you said about how narrow our view of the universe is. Could you just illustrate what you mean by that a little bit? So you mentioned in, in your answers about, you know, if we were able to be aware of gamma rays, I, I can't remember what you 
said specifically of us, but but could you just illustrate what you mean by that? That how limited we are. Yeah, well, one of the uh, twelve questions that uh, we haven't mentioned the fact that these questions—they're not my questions. They're, they're Fraser T. Smith's uh, yeah. questions. Right, Fraser yeah. T. Smith's a, a fantastic musician yeah. and producer. Worked with Adele and Stormzy. Yeah. Super and producer, yeah. I mean, uh, proper, proper and, yeah, yeah. A, a very, very talented guy, and he just came out with these twelve fundamental questions, and then ra- went round asking everyone from uh, Alfred Wilcox, uh, the, the Black Panther chap, who spent forty years in solitary, to the poet laureate, to myself as a neuroscientist, asking them what they thought about these twelve questions. And in this one, it was looking at truth and what is, how do we find our truth. And um, I look at that from a neuroscience perspective and took the example of vision. We're all in uh, a world, in the planet, um, but our visual apparatus is very different from a fly's and from a dog's. Uh, Some of us don't see the color green. And we all experience visual things differently from one another. But more profoundly, what we see in this very narrow bandwidth of uh, electromagnetic waves, which we call light, is a, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction, a thousandth of the bandwidths that are out there. So electromagnetic waves go from everything from gamma waves all the way to radio waves. And uh, many of them, and they, they just differ in their wavelength. And we see a tiny band of electromagnetic waves in the light band. Uh, we can't see X-rays, gamma rays, ultrasonic waves, and uh, if we, and yet they, the the universe is full of them. Uh, they're bouncing off everything. They're being emitted by things. Um, if we could see X-rays, we'd be able to see through things. If we had an eye that could see carbon twelve, we'd be able to look at things and know how old they were. So uh, we pick up a very tiny amount of what's out there in the universe and look at it through our eyes. And then once it's in our eyes, it goes through this incredibly complex processing uh, whereby it goes through the six layers of the visual cortex, each time being, if you like, corrupted or moulded or carved into what it is we want to see. And uh, as uh, we talked about earlier, uh, the majesty of the system is that that vision, that visual stimulus, actually creates that visual apparatus that you then use to look at things. And if you don't have it when your brain is plastic, when you're a very little baby, uh, you never learn to see. Mm. And once you learn to see, once the vision, the light has trained your brain, has molded your brain, uh, you then see the world. So the world makes you see, and then you see the world that made you see it. It's fantastic. Yes. And perhaps another way to summarize, at least in part, something you've, what you've just said is that the world that we experience is not the world as it is. Is that fair? Uh, yeah. We only look at a tiny bit of it. We only look at the light waves, just yeah. if we're just talking about vision. We only look at the light waves, uh, and we only look at those after we have mashed them around. I think I used the likeness that what we see is about as much like a wheat field as a croissant. Yeah. Um, by the time we've finished with it, we've really cooked it <laughs> into what it is we want. Which reminds me a little bit of, I can't remember which famous historical figure, I'm sure you'll be, remember, who said, you know, the sign of wisdom is knowing how little one knows. Right, I want to finish, Peter, with 
Uh, just a couple of other bits from your answers to to the 12 questions that you were to were given. And I'm going to sort of draw them together, if I may. One was around the pain of being unnamed. So you spoke about, for example, if a husband loses a wife or a wife loses a husband, they are a widow. If a child loses a parent, they are an orphan. But for someone, for example, in your case, who has lost a child, there's no name for that, as it were. And and you spoke about the agony thereof, which is something that hadn't occurred to me, but then was brought into sharp focus. You also wrote a beautiful poem for Dominic and then spoke as well about what matters most being love and how to recognize love. So I just wanted to mention them all together, just as a final point, as it were, and leave it to you to draw an answer together from everything I've just said there. I think life is incredibly exciting. And as well as not accepting normal, you need to be interested in everything. And um, again, uh, I got more from Dominic than I think Dominic got from me. And I continue to benefit from everything he taught me. It's uh, another saying who the origin of which I can't remember. It's a poor pupil who doesn't learn more than his master can teach. Um, Dominic did that in spades. And um, love is everything. Um, If you've got love, you can survive. If you haven't, I don't suppose you can. Peter, thank you very much indeed for your time. Like I said, I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. So to get the chance to do so over the last hour or so has been a real treat. So, um, you know, best of luck with all the work you'll do with Podium. Like I said, it's hugely exciting. And uh, just thank you very much for coming on. Great pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Peter Hamlin. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and could share it, I would be very grateful. Now, I know there are lots of coaches, teachers, parents and athletes who listen to this podcast. And I really would encourage you to check out the work that Podium Analytics are doing. I will link to their website in the show notes. And Podium have just launched a first of its kind annual survey to understand everyone's views on sports safety issues. So if you play sport, work in sport, If you're a parent of a child who plays sport, they really want to hear from you. To be part of their groundbreaking research, head to safetyinsportsurvey.org and I'll link to all of this in the show notes. And that is it for now. Until next time, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.